I've got a couple of announcements. Um, thanks. Let's start. Can you, are they outside, Doc? Can you just let them? <sighs> let's see. Um, let's see, a couple of announcements. Um, did you all get the the one sheet handout on the with the Elliot lines, the lines from Elliot that we did last I think like last year when we were doing the or the before uh, quartets? Did you all get that? It's a one sheet. Is it, do you have the stack over there, Doc? There's no title. It's just it, it. It's got lines from Elliot's. Let's see. Two two quick enough. One is everybody who came last Monday night, or when was this? Um, some last week, I think, when we met the. I'm really getting lost. One of the groups, and maybe you guys, um, talked about, yeah, because we had it in the library last week, yeah, didn't yeah. we? About how much more comfortable it was there. Mm -hmm. So we're going we're gonna to move to the library regularly. Um, it should save some confusion, and it, it, I think it'll probably um, help with the um, heating cold problem because we're on that hallway, and I think it's generally warmer there than it is back here. So. But really because it's just more comfortable and familiar. So from now on, plan to meet there. And um, if you haven't made any donations for the printing that we've done in the last several weeks, we'd be grateful for some for donations to help out. The other thing is this. I need to give a warning today. Um, you'll see why. Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something I think that's a little bit risky because it's far more heady, far more intellectual than most of the stuff that I do. So just know going in that it will be rough going for a while. I'm going to try to tackle some things with the Trinity. I hope I can do a justice to it. Um, just to warn you, okay? And if, if a lot of it seems to go over your head or it's too intellectual, just know that next week we will back in the text, grounded. Um, actually, this is in the text, but but it's a difficult thing to get to, and I want to take the time because um, I think it's important for you know. One of my great hopes. I don't know how you guys are finding this course, but one of my great hopes is that um, you all know that for me this is not just following up an interest of my own. Um, if, if I didn't believe that this were strengthening people's faith, I wouldn't do it. That's at the heart of what we're doing. The other thing is that I've, I've hoped all along that you would find yourself more able to make a defense of our faith. If a, if a Protestant Christian thing came up, I would hope to God you'd be more able now to point to things concretely and follow out an argument. Um, you know, not to take a bat over anybody's head, but but just in a spirit of a good discussion, laying out, raising questions and laying out arguments that 
make clear what's at issue here. Uh, so, okay, um, I think that's it. Um, Does anyone have a ballpoint pen? I borrow. A ballpoint. I'll give it there. Here, come down. Got one? That's not ballpoint. Is that one I'm writing? I've got one. Do you? You okay, Debbie? Yeah. Okay. Anybody? Any prayer requests? Barbara, can you close the door, please? Thanks. Anybody have any prayer requests? Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for um, the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, always, particularly this morning in the Mass. Father's words, um, in some ways they're valedictory words. Um, he's saying goodbye um, for all the many ways in which you are present in our community, here in this group. It's a particular joy for Suzanne and me. Um, I think what we would call, I hope, I hope the feelings are shared here, um, um, for the friendship here, the friendship that we share with each other, it's been a great blessing um, to us and we're both grateful for it. Um, 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 thank you particularly for Father, um, for the great gift that he's been to our community, certainly to me. Um, it's been a rare gift to know that I would be going to the last stage of my life and have a priest as good as he is. He's a soldier, he brings the soldier's mentality, he's tough-minded, one of the most charitable men I've ever known, um, the most welcoming in communion or confession that I've ever known. A wonderful man. Bless him and all that he's about to undertake. Give him courage, um, help him grow in humility in charity and maybe most especially in justice. Hard thing to do today for anybody. Um, I think particularly hard for priests. Help them to bring those things together, not one at the expense of the other. That will be a harder task for him. Um, and help him to find, let him find a welcoming community in Elizabeth Ann Seton. Um, let a blessing go forward in all that that community is about to undertake. Um, strange things happen um, when priests come into communities and it's not always good. Um, bless them, please. Um, I offer our um, thanks for these poets and I ask for an increased spirit of openness in all of us in what we're reading to take these things in and make them living in our lives. Let's not, help us not to just leave this as knowledge. Whatever we're learning, help us to put it to work in our own lives with each other, with those we meet around us. Give us courage, take away any fear. Be not afraid is our call in bringing our faith to the world. We offer these prayers of thanksgiving and hope in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <coughs> okay. Um, can you take out proof rock? Let's finish proof rock. Anybody want to make a comment on it? I asked you guys to read it. I don't know if you got around to it, but 
Did any of you read it and have any thoughts on it before? I'm just going to try to do this quickly. We still have a, it's a long poem, so I'm going to... We started it last week, right? Right. Right, okay. Okay, just um, a quick reminder, a quick reminder. You know from our work together that generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, the, the, um, the motive springs, the, 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 the intuition, the, the informing point of direction and spirit in the lyric is love. It's, what the, it's at the center of it, it's what gives rise to everything that goes on in it. The lyric is an expression of the I am, of the inner life of the poet. Okay, He's not describing something outside of himself, that's generally narrative. The lyric poet speaks his heart. He's very often expressing his love for his beloved. That's the general form of the lyric. So by and large, the greater number of lyrics are love poems. Shakespeare's complicated as a modern, if you look at his sonnets, John Donne. George Herbert, whose poetry we've read, he loves things in nature because he finds God there. So love motivates his lyrics. The wind hover, what else to call it except this adoration, this wonder at looking at what this bird does because it reminds him of Christ on the cross. Air pride prune here, buckle. Right at that moment, he sees a participation, um, an enactment, um, a sharing in that the greatness of that moment when Christ dies on the cross. Um, no wonder of its sheer plod, you know, plod down and shine. It's he sees the beauty of the of the work that a farmer does, and he sees Christ again in the in a fire going out. So everywhere in nature, he's seen Christ. It's his love. Um, so the motivating force of the lyric is love generally speaking, and more between the poet and his beloved, okay? So in writing this poem, Eliot knows that he's setting this poem in that tradition. The, it's called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. The irony is, and, and we talked about the name, right? J. Alfred Prufrock, it sounds so prudish. Like a, what would, we, what would be the equivalent in America, a geek or a... What's an intellectual who's a too nerd. a nerd? nerd? Yeah, except it loses something because we don't have the sense of proprieties that the English have. You know, they're proper. So J. Alfred Prufrock has that spirit of prudish pretension, or I don't think Americans live with that quite so much as the English do. But but it's the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. So it's a love song. The great irony, of course, is what we're getting is not. A, a lover, a poet declaring his love for another, but a, prefer, a perverse invitation to readers to join him as he, as he moves towards this assassination, this meet, secret meeting, apparently secret, with a woman. Okay? And as we read through it, I think it becomes clear, I hope it did with you guys, I don't know how you find it, becomes clear that this man is damned. Now what could be more ironic? What could be more ironic? So the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, it's placed in the tradition of the lyric, but as far as I know, it's the first major lyric in which the, the speaking figure, the, the, the person from whose inside we're getting the poem, is a person who himself lives, exists in an infernal condition. 
It's as if we've gone into Dante's Inferno and we're, like Dante, visiting one of the damned. Okay? That's how deep the iron is. And remember, um, The Wasteland and Geoffrey Prufrock were the two poems that, in a sense, marked the beginnings of modernity. Something, something happened. Elliot and Joyce were probably the major figures who, 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 who gave us a sense from, from literary people that there was something wrong with modernity. Okay, science was well underway, it had established itself, the Reformation is well underway as we know. The modern world is in disorder. The Victorians gave us this somewhat nice poetry. I mean, if you go back and look at Tennyson or you know, any of the Victorians. Browning, who I think is one of um, Eliot's um, influences, did the same thing a generation earlier. Because if you look at some of Browning's poems, they're told from the perspective of a man um, whose insights we go into. Same thing, we're learning a dramatic, I should bring one, I'll, I'll bring one, a dramatic monologue. But we see figures who are damned. Baudelaire, the Frenchman, did the same thing. So these poets were, um, were doing something that had never been done before. The poet that they were, the poems that they were writing were presenting an infernal condition. Not these sweet lyrics, not these ni nice lyrics to the beloved. It's as, it's as if love was disappearing. Something was wrong. Okay. So let me, let me pick up where we left off. Page three, second after the poem. Now remember, up until this point, he's been saying, um, do I dare, do I dare, do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there's time for decisions and revisions. For I have known them all already, I have known them all already, and I have known the arms already. If we just take a look at that one refrain, what does it suggest about Prufrock? Do I dare, do I dare, for I have known them all already, I have known the eyes already, I have known the arms already. What does that tell us about the man? A man of many experiences. Hmm? A man of many experiences. At least he thinks so, yeah, yeah. Aren't those the sorts of lines that you would expect to hear from somebody who's making excuses and giving himself a reason not to do something? I've known them all already, I've known them all already. I've known, if I've known it all, why go? So already, already we get a sense that we're in the mind of an intellectual, it's a Hamlet-like character, although I, that read, lots of people in the 19th century read Hamlet that way, like he was a procrastinator. Too much caught in his mind. I, I believe that's an absolute, absolute misreading of Hamlet. If you look at Hamlet, he does, he does everything he can, but he's a really thoughtful person. But in Prufrock, we see a modern person given to his mind to intellectualize things. And at this point, innocently he's going, for I've known them all already, I've known them already, and I've known the Okay, let's pick up there. Second half of the poem. So he's anticipating this meeting, apparently with this woman, and all of this is going through his head. And remember, a little bit like Virgil, with a major difference, he's inviting us to go along with him and take this journey with him. So he's gonna show us things the way Virgil did Dante. Let us go then, you and I, because readers were invited in. And remember that the, that the uh, head note, the epigraph, 
is from the Inferno. It's those lines from, um, spoken by Guido who says to Dante, if he knew that anybody got back to the world, he wouldn't tell Dante what he knows. But he believes that nobody gets out of the Inferno to go back, so he'll tell Dante everything he wants to know, trusting that it's confidential, it's in private, because he doesn't want anybody to know this. Okay, that's the epigraph. So Eliot is taking a passage from the Inferno as the headnote to this poem. Okay, let's pick it up. Shall I say I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. That is, I should have been somebody who was unable to feel anything in this great ocean of being. And the afternoon, evening, sleep so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor here beside you and me, should I, after tea and cakes and ice, that is, enjoying these proprieties, should I, after tea and cake and ice, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? Have sex? I... Um... But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet. You all know that what that illusion is to, yes? What is it? John the Baptist. <clears throat> so interestingly, it's almost as if he's making, as if this is going to a sexual moment, that he's going to get past the proprieties and the two are going to have sex. He, he, he imagined this in the context of John the Baptist, who is this great religious figure, and but he's also denied. I'm no prophet. You know, he doesn't see himself sacrificing himself. I'm no prophet. Here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short, I was afraid. And would it have been worth it after all, after the cups and marmalade, the tea among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me? Would it have been worthwhile? to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come back from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one settling a pillow by her head should say, that's not what I meant at all, that's not it at all. The two are at cross purposes as he imagines this. And once again, he's make, he sees himself in terms of an important biblical figure. So whatever's on his mind, it's played out against an awareness of, of biblical realities. Okay? And the lines, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, is a direct, almost a direct quote from um, Marvell's poem to his coy mistress. You could look at almost 90% of the lines in Eliot's poems, and you'll find that there's an elusive quality that they refer to another poem in the tradition. In this particular poem, Marvell, to his coy mistress, is writing a poem to his mistress, trying to persuade her to go to bed with him. And it takes the form of a syllogism. Um, if we if if we had but time, this I I would um, praise your breasts for five thousand years, or I can't remember the, you know, if we had time, I would do this and this and this. But we don't have time because time is moving on. So therefore. Yeah, right. That looks good. But, so, but so Marvell's behind this. The, the irony here is, of course, 
Marvell had the courage to write this poem to this woman, making it clear what he wanted. Look at Prufrock, the contrast, because the last thing that you can say about him is that there's any virility or serious intent. He's in his head giving himself arguments um, and doing it with some sense of this the, the biblical, scriptural, religious dimension to what's going on. And would it have been worth it after all? Now, so we've seen that line. Would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the sun sets in the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, the teacups, the skirts that trail along the floor and this and so on? Do you see the tendencies to romanticize? You know, when we're going out on a date, when we're going to meet somebody, we think along the beach, sunrise, sunset. Um, but what, what happens after sex happens? How long does a romance hold? You know, truly, um, as you move forward. It is impossible to say just what I meant, but, if, but as if a magic lantern threw the nerves in patterns across the screen, would it have been worthwhile if one settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning towards the window should say, that's not it at all, that's not what I meant at all? So he's already imagining that moment when the two will be at cross purposes. Let's say, hypothetically, after sex something happens and there's this expression projection forward of the estrangement that will take place between them, cross purposes. No, I'm not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt, an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse, at times indeed almost ridiculous, almost at times the fool. <clears throat> I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? Remember in the beginning, a number of the stanzas were set off against this image of the women coming and going, the women come and go, talking to Mike. So everything that's going on with Prufrock is set against this um, uh, very aesthetic culture and, and probably some sense of a high aristocratic culture. The women are meeting in drawing rooms talking about art. So, so in one sense, Prufrock belongs to that world. He's of it. Should I comb my hair? Should I do this? Row of toes, you know, trousers up. Very fastidious, very self-conscious. If Prufrock walked into a room like this late, what would be going on in his mind as he walked in? Can you imagine? An excuse? Hmm? An excuse? My sense of him is he, there's no way he could walk in without thinking, everybody's looking at me. Right. Everybody's looking. They'll see my tie, they'll see my pants, they'll see, you know, mm -hmm. that he's so meticulous and so self-conscious. Um, I mean, that, that in some sense, that's an indication of something close to insanity. I mean, the one thing you want to do when you walk into a room, however embarrassed you are, is pretend that nobody cares a damn about what you're doing. Walk in and, you know, um, prove us the opposite of that. He, he, he cannot think about anything but himself. He's so self-conscious to the point of a paralysis. He, he's in his head, constantly in his head. So here at the end, shall I part my hair? Do I dare eat a peach? That is the most ordinary things. I shall wear white flannel 
trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. Now notice what that triggers. I do not think they will sing to me. By the way, mermaids singing, I hope everybody's seen, is an allusion to poetry, the songs of poetry, and the sirens you know from the Odyssey. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown black when the wind blows the water white and black. A, a seductive, beautiful image, very feminine. Combing the white hairs of the waves blown Something very seductive about the sea and feminine. It's just reinforcing the siren aspect of what's going on. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drowned. Now, I don't, want, I don't want to go into this. I'm going to leave it for you to read. I'll just make a couple of comments and then allow a brief question because I want to get to Dante. Pruvrock's an amazing poem if you think about what I just said, the, the historical context of the lyric. The lyric traditionally has all generally been the expression of a, a lover for the beloved. And so often it, it, it takes two forms. He's grieving over the loss of his beloved. That's at the beginning of the tradition. You, you grieve the loss of the, of the woman you love, or you, or you hope that you can make a consummation, or you express the joy of it. But in all the lyrics, we get the inner life of the poet. In, we go inside him. In narrative, we tell a story about what's going on outside. Okay? In lyric, we're in the poet's interior. So up until proof rock, love, grieve, the grief of losing it, the anticipation of expecting it, or the joy of consummating it, right? That's the range of the lyric. Here we get the love song of Geoffrey Prufrock. It's about a man going for an assassination, meeting with a woman, and it ends on those dark notes. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed, red and brown, till human voices wake us and we drown. Clearly, proof rock is the product of a very aesthetic, high culture imagination. Um, I think all of the images here at the end refer to the imagination, that he lives in the imagination, and he's a, and he's a part of a culture that lives in an imag in imagination. It's taken by images, seductive, haunting images, something feminine like the siren. Um, remember, too, um, C.S. Lewis was English, and he wrote this essay, um, I can't remember the name of the essay, but in the essay he says, you have to be careful about cultivated virtues. This is from an Englishman who was aware of a, an aristocratic aspect to the English people. You have to be aware, you have to be careful of cultivated virtues. If you set out to play the piano because you want to be better than somebody else, or you want to show how good you are, you're going to become supercilious, snobbish. That was not a small thing in Eliot and Lewis's culture, the English, because they had this aristocratic background. You're going to be careful about doing that, because if you, if you do it for those reasons, you'll end up being a prig. Somebody thinks too much of himself. If you're going to do something, you do it because you love it. Gen genuinely love it. I mean, parents need to be careful about what they do with their kids. Um, because sometimes they want their kids to perform because they want to show how good they are. I mean, in some sense, they don't even see that they're using their own children. Um, Proofrock belongs to that culture. 
when he says we have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls, I think he's saying he's lived in a literary world too long, poetry, literature, the world of the imagination, the seductiveness of the siren, um, till human va voices wake us up, so that when he encounters anything real, the reality of actual human voices, he drowns. He doesn't know what to do with it. So in the love song of Jaffa Prufrock, we've got an, an, a radical critique of the entire lyric tradition. Eliot's going into the, the, um, the inf infernal character of a man who's really living in a damn situation and offering that, and in doing that, he's, he's casting a light on the whole nature of the way in which lyric poets sentimentalize love, treat it dishonestly, and here he's showing there's an evil aspect to it we don't see. So it's a major, major poem. Who's the source of this? Dante. You can't read Eliot's poetry all the way through, even through the quartets, without realizing that the greatest influence in his life was Dante. He showed him everything. And this is his sort of, with a couple of poems, when we do the Hollow Men, and uh, what's the other one that I... Gerontian, you're going to see infernal conditions again. We're going to be in hell for a while. <laughs> anyway, so let me leave that. Any quick questions or observations or responses to this? It's a dark poem. I think I talked, didn't I talk to you about the rhyme scheme, how it's traditional but it breaks from it? Look at the first page. A, A, B, C, C, D, D, E, E, F, G, G, I, sky, table, streets, retreats, hotels, right? I know, I'm not sure that I said this before, but let me make this statement. If you go through this, you'll see that Eliot's following a conventional couplet rhyme scheme. So he's looking back to um, one aspect of the lyric tradition because you know from the readings that we've done that, that lyrics tend to be in rhymes. A, B, A, B, A, A, B, C, A, B, C. I mean, a great variety of possibilities, but, but a very strict rhyme pattern and a strict metrical norm to the line. Every line has a certain number of syllables. It has the same beat. So there are signs of something traditional here, but he breaks from them because look at the unevenness of the lines and occasionally we'll get a rhyme that, that doesn't pick up with another line. So what's what's the feel I mean, this is a hard question. What's the feeling you experience when you read a line and the N word picks up this a rhyming word in the second line? Chime, rhyme, time, mine, you know, whatever. What do you feel? This is a hard question, but I'm asking you to go to your feelings. What do you feel when a word that ends the line is picked up by a word that has the same sound in the next line? Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent. But do not ask, what is it? Let us go to make our visit. What do you feel, that's our question, when you, when you have that experience, when you're reading a piece of poetry? Yeah, yeah. Harm, harmony, rest. Isn't there a pleasure in hearing something picked up again? Genuinely, it's like it completes itself. It's huh? like music. It exactly. It is music. Remember, I've been saying, 
we're reading this partly for the musical elements. Is it, don't you feel a pleasure when something is completed? Yes. It picks it up. I mean, um, Linda's comment, you know, oh, it's, it's like a rest. You heard something, it's picked up. It's like you can rest in it. You take a pleasure in it. What happens when it's not completed? So you've got something like, mm, let us go then you and I, when evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table, let us go through certain um, half-deserted streets. What happened to table? What do you feel when the rhyme is not completed? Yeah disappointment because your expectation is it will come because the expectation is there's an order to the world it's fulfilled we take a pleasure when it doesn't come you're left with a disappointment things are not right and do you see what Eliot's doing just with the rhyme scheme he's setting in a traditional mode he's working with it and occasionally it drops there's nothing there how appropriate that is for this poem. So, I mean, you can go through the whole poem and, you know, look at things like that through the... So well, did you? Yeah, there's another feeling that I get with the rhyming. Is sometimes it seems too simplistic. So I think one of the things he does is he sets you up and then gives you the dissonance. Yes. So there's this nice little sort of sing-song and then wham. Yes, right. And if it weren't the contrast, like sometimes I enjoy poetry more when it's not rhyming. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, mm-hmm. so I, sometimes, sometimes when I hear this, but that's bad poetry. Okay, okay but, that's bad poetry. All right, but you know, there's a yeah. little of that too. Yeah, but it's the contrast that right. there's this right, 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 right. Good poetry. I'm talking. I mean, we're we've been reading really good poetry. I think um, good poetry will heighten that pleasure because. They do it in a way that doesn't draw attention to itself. It's just. But it's, here, I think it does. Yes. To me, it does. It draws big attention, and then it breaks. Yeah, and he does it with a um, variation in line lengths too. I mean, there's so many things that he's doing that plays off a tradition, but departs from it consciously for the reasons that I've just gone over. Okay. So I would just suggest reread it now. Go through the poem because it'll just mean a lot more to you. But go before we leave it, these lines, for I've known them all already, known them all already. And then in the second half of the poem, would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worth it after all? It is impossible to say just what I mean. Um, no, I'm not this. No, I'm not. Describe Proofrock's mind. I just got something totally different from the poem. Totally? Yeah. Well, not totally. Go ahead. But, but different. I mean, to me, it, it was a reflection of, of, an, of an elderly man looking back on a life that he thought he loved and realizing that he came up short. Okay, but you know that he's you know that he's in, inviting a reader into this world and taking us on a visit. To, I, I think he is towards yeah. something that's about to happen. Uh, I guess to me it was just that last line. He says, first, 
By sea girls, yeah, that whole that left we have lingered in the chambers of the sea. By sea girls, read the seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. And to me, he's 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 kind of close to the end of his life, and he's reflecting. I mean, I can see a, I can see an old guy sitting on a bench, looking out at the sea, reflecting on his life, and realizing how short he came up. You know. Uh, so to me, the, the the love was something totally different. Yeah, but it's just yeah, it's just, just an observation, I guess. But to me, it was and and the and 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 the whole the, the the rhyming pattern kind of took me through that whole process that you that you're sitting there reflecting, you're drifting, and then something happens that suddenly brings you back. Yeah, to reality. I, yeah, go ahead, Debbie. Did this you may be very simplistic, but I I too I didn't get exactly what you got, but I got something some somewhat different mm -hmm. that is a critique on society as this is the mm -hmm. what you see on the outside mm -hmm. and you read poetry the lyric poets and and this is the way you're supposed to feel mm -hmm. this is you're supposed to just have this undying mm -hmm. love for this person and he said well not really um that 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 yes there's love but then there's all this there's something else going on here that that is just not harmonious with that and yeah. that that there's a certain lie about what is being being told to us and i think the last sentence absolutely says that because he says till human voices wake us so what i'm always hearing from all of all of what society is telling me what i'm supposed to be doing i hear it and i know it's false and i drown yeah just yeah, I've got to. I want to. Probably not. <laughs> I've got to make. A, I've got to make a brief comment to the two of you. Doc, do you have a do you have a response to this? No, I didn't hear. What was that last line? I'm interested in hearing. Oh, the big cop out. <laughs> Here, let me just offer this thought to the two of you. Uh, I think the two, the two that are lost. <laughs> well, here I, I've got to I've got to try to be really careful with my words right now. <laughs> it's okay. You want to talk about a bad reader? No, no. I think you know, you know how, what I think of your reading. I think you're an extraordinary reader. So until now, <laughs> and I mean I mean that. The, the, here the danger, the danger, the the danger. I mean, you in some sense you hit something right on the head. Um, because we go into lyric poetry with certain expectations, mm -hmm. you've got a tradition behind you. So there's a truth to the way you describe it. That clearly there's a discrepancy between what's going on with Prufrock and the world. Mm -hmm. Where I think you're missing something, and, and the danger here is, is <laughs> your reading of the poem um, approaches the kind of sentimental poetry that Ellig's critiquing. Because he knows the danger of romanticizing something, trying to make it something that it's not, how dangerous that's been for poets. Remember, his, his model here is Dante. And this is, we're in an infernal world, the, 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 the um, epigraph points it. The really important thing to see here, and why, he, why the epigraph takes us back to Dante, is it's, it's a serious question, like the, like the people in hell, how much does he understand himself? And I would say, He's like a character in a drama. We have to, I'm going to bring some Browning poems in to make this clear. He's like a character in a drama. He's, in, he's invited us into a world 
But as we move through it with him, his constant response is, um, for I've known them all, I've known them all, I've known them all. Would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worth it? I mean, all of it is a sort of cynical giving of excuses um, to not go through with this. What makes it more complicated is he's got this religious imagery that forbids it all anyway. But, um, but he's a man in his head. He's giving excuses everywhere. And I think what we see in the ending is, is his awareness that there's something about the way he's lived his life that's, that's drawn him too much into the world of imagination, so he's lived there. When he makes contact with reality, with real things, he's gone until human voices wake us and we drown. But anyway, the thing that I just want to leave you with is remember, Prufrock is like the people in hell who've lost the good of the intellect. He does not see himself very well. Elliot, Elliot points to that everywhere. So anyway, my suggestion is go back and reread it just with the work that we've done um, and, keep, and keep Dante in mind. Okay. Now, the, one of the reasons I wanted to do this now is because we're reading Dante. Um, we set this, remember we've set a Protestant Catholic world off against each other. We're in Dante's world right now. <coughs> Dante wrote, what, 600 years ago? And you know that my, my, my own sense of the relevance of Milton and Dante, Milton is often looked at as one of the first moderns. He's on the threshold of modernity. My suggestion to you is that he's modern in, in, in the sense that he, he makes us aware of certain Reformation things going on in the world then during Milton's time. But in one way, he looks back to the past um, that makes him anachronistic, truly, even though he's looked at as a modern. And I tried to make that clear. If you look at his treatment of the gods, you know, in the whole epic action, it goes back to Homer's world. If you look at Dante, Dante precedes Milton. But in some ways, I, my argument is the Commedia is more modern because he actually takes himself as the hero. He's a fallen person. And he takes his own life, but he takes a religious journey as his theme, as his action. <coughs> So we're learning, we're going into the life of an actual person. He's taken us into an actual journey. So we're grounded in reality and we're learning about the nature of, like all epics, about the nature of everything and what Dante, and what, yeah, what Dante does. The point I want to make here is that for, for Eliot, Dante is far more contemporaneous with him. He speaks to his world more and let me underscore this in this way. When the intellectuals first read Eliot, they loved him, embraced him. After his conversion, when he, be, when he became more explicitly Christian, they turned on him. It's the same work, same poet. I mean, it, it, thematically it makes a change because his faith becomes more part of what he does. Um, but um, he's more one with Dante. Dante was the major influence in his life. And if you read Eliot's poetry, the one thing you have to say about it is, is that it's absolutely modern. It's not traditional at all. He, he's not, he, rarely does he make an explicit defense of anything Christian. He's speaking to an audience that's not Christian. He doesn't want to alienate them. He's got to find a way to speak to a world that's no longer Christian and reveal its disorders. 
So when you read Prufrock and then read The Wasteland, you're finding the two major poems that set modern, or define modernity, a serious condemnation, a critique of the modern world. Eliot is saying, we're in an infernal condition, and in the wasteland, he's saying, we're in the wasteland. Remember, I've already quoted that phrase from Dante's, showed you that phrase in Dante's Inferno. He's showing us that the modern world <laughs> has gone to hell. So it's a, and Joyce did the same thing, James Joyce and Ulysses. <coughs> we're seeing a modern world that has turned its back on a Christian understanding of things. So intellectually, while it was very appealing to intellectuals initially, when they began to see how much it was a critique of everything that they believed in, they lost interest in Iliad. So, very important figure. We're going to do, um, I think we'll do the Hollow Men next, next week. So next week, read, read, before we meet for class, read the Hollow Men. Make sure you read it. I think I've told you all this before. It's uh, I'm partly got spread on my mind because even though he wants to argue with me all the time, I think he's an extraordinary reader. Ar argue with me on that one. <coughs> I think I've told you this before. I graduated from UC Berkeley, an English major. So I really thought, I mean, I, did, I wasn't self I just loved English. I didn't reflect on it, I just enjoyed English and it became a major. But looking back on it, it was, it, to me it's a scandal. I left UC Berkeley, which was one of the top universities in the country, Berkeley, Cornell, um, maybe Dartmouth, some of the other Ivy League schools were, were thought to be some of the best schools in the country. I was an average student, and I, I didn't grow up reading literature, didn't grow up writing. In fact, I took a, I took a semester off just to write, because I didn't write. I didn't take education seriously in high school. I just went through, I played basketball is what I did. But I realized I, I just couldn't compete with these people. They were all good students. I, I wasn't. Uh, I took a semester off and just worked on my writing. I wanted to, you know, I, want, I wanted to stay with this literature and stuff. Um, it wasn't until years later that I realized that there were major works that I'd heard about that I'd never read. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Divine Comedy. They're not a part of the um, UC Berkeley English curriculum because they're in the foreign languages. Classics, they belong to Latin and Greek and say medieval studies, whatever the other languages be. So they're not offered. And what I learned, this is studies, I mean, the criticism, the, uh, uh, this so bothers me. How can you begin to know English literature, which comes in roughly around Beowulf, you know, Chaucer and Beowulf is where it starts. How can you know those works when those early works themselves rest on the Iliad, the narrative tradition, the lyric tradition? You don't even understand what the poets are doing because they're playing off of those works and you don't know them. They weren't a part of your education. So on my own, I read the Iliad. You know, in the Odyssey, they were okay. There's not, I, mean, I can't say. I didn't understand the Iliad. Not a clue. I mean, I read a book, you know, could roughly describe the plot. I, there's no way I could have come close to doing what I can do with it now. 
because I've been teaching it forever. We never read something well the first time. Never. Debbie said a couple weeks ago, if you don't mind me quoting, she, she walked out and she said, I'm so glad I'm taking this again because it makes me realize how much more we see the second time going through. I mean, I, I'm assuming that's true for all of us. I know it's certainly true for me. It took me years to... It wasn't until I came to UD to do the doctoral program that I read the Iliad with a, with a teacher. And I'm sure my views would differ from his now, you know, because I've, I've taught it and taught it and taught it. But doing it with a teacher helped me to see so much more than I could have ever seen on my own. That was true. And I took the Divine Comedy from a teacher. Um, so it's, it's only when we go back, and I, and I can say in an unqualified way, I don't think we read it well unless we have a, a Virgil, a guide. Because there's, you know, people who have gone through things see so much more than we do. So, um, so I would say read it again, you know, go back, because you'll see, it. you know that's true. I mean, I've been encouraging you to do that, particularly with so many of the lyrics, so they're small. Um, let's start. Okay, this is going to get testy. This is, I've warned you all, okay. Um, quick review. We did the level of violence. I want to go back very quickly and look at um, a number of the um, people. Remember, um, the, the level of the violence is the seventh level. Okay, so we've gone through limbo, or the virtuous pagans, lust, gluttony, avarice, <coughs> sullenness, sullen anger, um, the heretics, and now the level of the violence, right? We're at the seventh level. Now hold on to those numbers. And at the level of the violence, there are three levels. Sins against one's neighbors, sins against oneself, sins against God. Okay, those are the three levels. The first one's indicated by a, a, um, a river of boiling blood, because when you take the life of another person, it's a violently passionate act. So they're appropriately... Um, what in swamped in this river of blood. Um, the suicides are in the next level, and you know that the, there are all these arid trees, and the souls are a part of the trees. They gave up their bodies, so they're, they're, they become part of these plants. At the next level, in the level of violence against God, it's interesting, the, the, one of the early ones we see is um, somebody blaspheming God. He's directing his rage at God. But the others are the sodomites, homosexuals, and the users. And you have to ask, how are they, how are they violating, how is what they're doing a violation of violence against God? Okay, So just keep in mind those, those three levels. The one thing they all have in common is their sterility. They're fruitless. Okay? Go to page 75. I want to do this just quickly because I want to get to the Trinity so we can spend the rest of our time in absolute confusion. <laughs> what page is right now? 75. You have to knock it, Lydia. Yeah. Just take a look at the top of 74 once again. This wasteland was a dry expanse of sand. Remember, that's Eliot's, along with Jaffer Prufrock, the wasteland 
um, was the great poem that defined modernity. In that poem, Eliot was showing the sterility of the absolute spiritual sterility of the modern world. It, it just condemned a modernity. <clears throat> That's how great a poet he was. Think about the courage that it took to do that. Particularly when you think everybody else is sentimentalizing poems, you know, making love this sweet thing. Um, I'm trusting that all of us know that love is not an easy thing. It's not always sweet. Um, 75. Okay. Um, in the middle of 75, he comes across Capanius, who was one of the kings who attacked Thebes. And while he was in the midst of making his an attack, um, Jupiter threw a thunderbolt at him to stop him because he, his pride was so inordinate, so, so excessive. And his response to God in that moment was to thumb his nose at him, just to blaspheme him. So he says, what I was once alive, I still am dead. Let Jupiter wear out his smith, that is his blacksmith, from whom he seized in anger that sharp thunderbolt he hurled to strike me down my final day. Um, remember that the blacksmith, that is the maker of things, the god who made things in the Roman world was Vulcan. Do you remember who the god was in the Greek world? Hephaestus, yeah. Um, remember, they were the one, Hephaestus was the one who made Achilles a shield. Remember, that was so important for understanding what was going on there. So here, he's, he's showing nothing but contempt that, the, that how, how impotent Jupiter was because he, he had to ask his smith to forge this bolt that he could throw. I mean, every, every word oozes with contempt. Let Jupiter wear out his smith from whom he seized in anger, that sharp thunderbolt he hurled to strike me down my final day. Yeah, yeah, I, I can remember hearing this line from a prisoner once in a jail whose response to his condemnation was, let them punish me all they want. I'm not going to change. That's the attitude he took to him. That's just a human being. But you know, you can hear that. You're, you're just going to keep doing what you do, no matter what. Let, let them do all the harm they want. Um, I'm going to do this. Let him who went out, let's see, um, he hurled to strike me down my final day. Let him wear out those others one by one who work the soot black forge of Montegibello. As he shouts, help me, good Vulcan, I need your help. He's re uh, reinforcing what a pitiful god um, um, he was, Jupiter. The way he cried that time at Phlegra's battle, and with all his forces let him hurl his bolts at me, no joy of satisfaction would I give him. My guide spoke back at him with cutting force. I never heard his voice so strong before. So this is an indication of Virgil's anger at um, Capanius. Oh, Capanius, since your blustering pride will not be stilled, you are made to suffer more. No torment other than your rage itself could punish your gnawing pride more perfectly. There's his contrapasso. Okay. <coughs> Go to 83. So, there were the violence against neighbors, violence against self. Remember Pierre de Vanya, who's the one who committed suicide because he lost his place in court? Is everybody clear? Violence against 
neighbors, violence against self. Now we're in violence against God. And we just saw Capanius in his blaspheming God. Okay. Now, now he encounters Brunetto. We went through this. Remember, Brunetto was his teacher, page 83. And he describes him, after their conversation, running off as if he were winning the prize. Then he turned back and he seemed like one of those who run Verona's race across the field to win the green cloth prize. And he was like the winner of the group, not the last one in. And I, I, don't, I told you how terrifying, frightening this particular one is because he's so consumed with wanting to be better than other people to win. So that that's what motivated him in life. That's what he's doing in the afterlife. So to me, it's it's just one of the most perfect renderings of the contrapasso that I know of. That you're just continuing to do um, with no with no sense of irony, no no sense of something wrong. Now going over, remember he calls up um, um, the Griffin who comes up, and here at the level. Continuing with the level of the Sodomites, he meets um, um, Jacopo on page 8485. Look at the bottom of 84. When we stopped, they resumed their normal pace, and when they reached us, they started circling. The three together formed a turning wheel. Just like professional wrestlers stripped and oiled, eyeing one another for the first best grip before the actual blows and thrusts began. We're at the level of sodomites, the homosexuals. Why does he describe them that way? What's the function of that um, that metaphor? Like professional wrestlers stripped and oiled, eyeing one another for their first best grip before the actual blows and thrusts begin. Anybody? <clears throat> Let me put this look me a little bit more bluntly. Why is that an appropriate description, an appropriate simile of homosexuality for Dante? Circling in this way, each kept his face pointed up at me so that their necks and feet moved constantly in opposite directions. At the bottom, he'll meet one of them, and I, who share the post of pain with them, was Jacopo Rusticucci, and for sure my reluctant wife first drove me to my sin. That is because his wife denied sex to him. At some time, he turned to sex with these men. But why is that description of the wrestlers? Remember, they're certainly, they have to keep moving because they're on this burning sand. I'm not sure that I've got. Let me let me shift. The, if, if I've never met, if you if if you could picture homosexuals in a homosexual bar, why do they go into that bar instead of another bar, and what would they do when they got in it? Yeah, I mean, wouldn't that be it? I mean, and and the, listen to the eyeing one another for the first best grip before the actual blows and thrusts began. Do you not? It's pretty descriptive. Yeah. <laughs> do you not hear in the in the rhythm and the automatopoeia and the the words used 
an intimation of the sexual activity that could work here, so that even if they're in hell, that impulse is still there. That is, what they want from each other is physical sex, and some of the, since it's men with men, is likely to be pretty physical. They're rough. And notice, remember, Jacopo blames his wife. She's the reason he's there. Um, remember, all of these men were very well educated, very respected men in their society, very articulate, um, well-bred. Going over, he meets, um, the griffin comes up, and then at, he goes to the, the next group because the, the sodomites and the usurers are in the same um, sand area. On page 91, he meets another group, except these, these now are usurers instead of um, sodomists. I carefully examined several faces among the group caught in the rain, raining flames and did not know a soul, but I observed that around each sinner's neck a pouch was hung, each of a different color, with a coat of arms, and fixed on these they seemed to feast their eyes. That's all they're looking at. And while I looked about among the crowd, I saw something in blue on a yellow purse that had the face and bearing of a lion. The irony of that. By the way, you know the animal that stands over the level of the violence is the lion. Because he's He's nobler. Remember, the leopard is the animal that represents the incontinent because the incontinent is light, quick, but it's an expression of a weakness. That's what incontinence is. The lion represents a nobler figure. So the sins come from a nobler way of standing in the world. Had the face and bearing of a lion, and while my eyes continued their inspection, I saw another purse as red as blood exhibiting a goose more white than butter, and one who had a blue sow, pregnant looking, stamped on the whiteness of his money bag, asked me, what are you doing in this pit? Dante described, and after this discussion, he and Virgil will descend into the level of fraud, the eighth level, um, I'll just I'll pass over in a second. Um, why, why this description of the users, they have no identity. He can't distinguish them um, on the basis of facial um, qualities. He only knows them by these coat of arms that each wears. So they're identified by a coat of arms. They've lost their facial qualities, the liniments that form their faces. Why? The sin depersonalizes people? What's the sin? Well, I guess it's Usury. Oh, yeah, oh, usury. C can you make the connection, Tom? <sighs> I don't know if they're, you know. I think you're absolutely right. Can you? Well, I'm just thinking of, of uh, it, it, it's the, I always say psychological. It's the face of the ego than the true self. Hmm. The ego is to adapt to the reality, but it doesn't, it's not your substantial self. So if you stay in the ego, you don't, in God's eyes, you do not, you know, Merton said, when, if you, when you go to heaven, most of you won't be there because what, what you come with, you lose. Your essential self shows up, mm -hmm. or the true self. Yeah. And it's like somehow something's lost in this transition. And um, 
and he gives it some great descriptions. I don't know if that would relate to this, mm -hmm. that somehow that sin depersonalizes or we lose our true identity. That hasn't been true, you know, right along. I mean, Fred's question last week, which I thought was so so good, that how can Dante recognize them? Because for the most part, he does, he sees. But here, remember in the uh, level of the avarice when the people were, I think it was there when they were crashing their stones, they didn't have identities. And that was that was with respect to money. The, those who spend it and those who um, hoard it, you know, they were crashing each other. They didn't have identities. And here again, interestingly, people who are concerned with money lose their identity. They, that is, they become so... They so give their identity, their the self, to the to an unreal abstraction. You because money has no worth, right? It has no inherent worth. It's a piece of what it does is facilitate exchange. That's the function of money. When people start, this is really interesting. Money has no in, intrinsic worth. It's a it's a convention. It's made up to facilitate to help make possible exchanges between different values of things. So it has no inherent worth. If you give your whole identity to that, to something that's nothing, it's appropriate that you lose. What, you, what you're known by is <laughs> this, whatever you made of your money, this coat of arms, or you know. But they themselves have lost themselves. I mean, um, well, in the world, a user was basically a lender, right? Mm -mm. A user was a in Dante's world was automatically a sin because you're. You're taking advantage of somebody else's misfortune to improve your own. Well, no, but I mean, I, I, think, I mean, I actually read that. I think where Dante said that he was very much against lending, whether you charged interest or not. Oh. And I drew from that that what what what's going on here is that when you when you lend some someone money, that in in essence you're taking. A little something away from him, whether it's self-respect or you know self-worth or an, an appreciation of self-worth, because he said it was a, he, he viewed it as a sin whether you charged interest or not. Yeah. It's one thing when you charge ridiculous interest for something when you lend money, you're clearly trying to take advantage of them. But in this case, it was almost like even if you loan someone money, whether you charged interest or not, it was a sin. Yeah, I've never it heard the only way yeah. that ever. Well, it, it's it's actually in, in, he, he, he says it. I think in, in the preamble to the to the circle, and so the only way I could make any sense out of that was the fact that by virtue of lending someone something, you're you're taking something away from them. Yeah, I've not heard that. Find it, Fred, if you can, if you know the passage. What I do know, with a fair degree of certainty, is. Usury has been condemned by the church forever. It was condemned far more rigorously than we live in a business world today that makes borrowing that interest, you know, legal. So, but Dante would have condemned usury because of the interest involved. The church's position on that was that pretty strictly at that time. My question here before we leave this section: What's why? Why are the usurers and the sodomites on the same level in the burning sand? What? What? The, what's the link between them? What's the link? They are. They are. Here's the interesting irony between these two groups. 
Um, and here, and why are they why are they in the sins against God, violence against God? It's really violence against God and nature. That's what's wrong with usury. For Dante in the Catholic Church, it's it's a it's a violence against nature. And if you violate nature, indirectly you're violating God because God made we that is everything we do should be in accord with nature. In, in the Reformation, when nature gets put out of it, we don't see things that way anymore. But for Dante Violating nature was indirectly a crime against God because he made it. We should do everything we can in our power to, to bring ourselves into accord, conformity with our nature. You know that the modern world denies that we can do whatever we want. We can make up our nature whatever. We can have sex change. We can, we can do whatever we want. What's the connection between sodomy and usury? Did, did you have something? Well, I'm kind of following your, I'm not sure that I understood it correctly, but that it's it's unnatural. Sodomy is unnatural, and making money off the misfortune of others is an unnatural act. Right. So if that's a sin against God, then that puts it together with... Right. And the interest. yes, exactly. The overt sin of blessing. And the interesting connection between is one of inversion the the um, the sodomites take away the possibility of fertility they de they deny the creative aspect that's supposed to be go along with the sexual union because according to the church there's a danger in separating the two it's only by virtue of sex that we can create life so the sodomite is is denying a, a natural instinct in humans it has to be lawful I mean for Dante you have to enter it the users are doing the opposite. They're taking something that's um, artificial and making it breed. So the sodomite takes away breeding. The user exploits it. That's why, I mean, Linda's way, they're both doing unnatural art, but it's really important to see that what makes it, um, what defines them there is in relation to the man's ability to create, to bring new life into the world. So what they're doing is, is, is making life impersonal, a thing, taking it away, destroying it. So that's why Dante has them both on the same level. Okay. Now, very, very quickly. Fraud symbol, this is the eighth level. There are nine levels, and it's important to do that because it's a multiple of three in the Trinity, because that's where I'm going in a second. But just remember, there are two forms of fraud for Dante. Two forms of fraud. What he calls fraud simple and fraud complex. Fraud complex um, is distinguished from fraud simple on this basis. Fraud complex involves the betrayal of a greater trust. So if the, if the fraud involved, involves a, fam, a family member, say, or a lord, it's a greater betrayal because a greater trust is involved. So all of the trusts here are relatively impersonal. They have to do with impersonal, more impersonal relationships between people. When we get to the ninth circle, fraud complex, we're looking at fraud that became a kind of treachery because it involved real loyalties or trust between people. So, at the very end, when we when we see see when we see Satan, he'll be eating 
Cassius, Brutus, and Judas. Why are they there? Cassius and, and Brutus, because they betrayed Caesar, their Lord. Why is Brutus there? Because he betrayed his Lord. So the highest betrayal would be a betrayal of a Lord. The political Lord, the religious Lord. Caesar Christ. And you'll see other minor betrayals there. But all of these are less personal, more impersonal. But, but Bob, do yeah. those things lead to the, the other? Right. Yeah, this, okay. this is, we're starting now, we're going, remember, we're going from the level of violence to the deepest level of fraud. Right, here we are. Remember, it's, it's got three levels. The incontinent, right? The violent, and the fraudulent. And remember, the circle of Dece, the city of Dece was here. This is the level of heresy because the sins of incontinence involved a weakness. So this, a man just didn't have the power to overcome a sin that he was given to. The violent are different because it involves a level of belief. Heresy means to hold a belief. That's what heresy means, to hold a belief. So to move from the incontinent to violent means you're moving in the direction where the will and the mind are more um, deliberately involved, aggressively. Um, weak, the incontinence has to do with the weakness. Fraud means an, an active abuse, misuse of the intellect to commit the sin. And there are two levels. Level 8 is fraud simple and level 9 is fraud complex. Okay. Now, we're not going to go into this today because I know there's not going to be time, but I've got a couple of questions to ask. Um, the simoniacs, the selling of church properties. Um, Barriters, the, the selling, the misuse of civil properties, procedures. Um, simony has to do with um, religious things. Religion for Dante is clearly higher than civil things, right? Dante knows all of this. Why would he put the barriters lower than the... Why would he make this a worse sin than, than simony? Number one, I'm not going to answer that. I just want you guys to think about this. Um, and here's the other question that I want to ask. Where would Dante put... Sort of fight here. Those two separate oh, wow. things are all one. What? What? Where would Dante? Where would Dante put sex trafficking today? I don't want an answer. Just next week when we get to when we go. Where would he put sex traffickers? And where? Where would he put? Where would he put journalists? <laughs> or you can add whatever you want. Whatever judges or teachers. God, where would Dante put? Here, let me include that. Where would Dante put teachers? We're having a quiz next week. I've already given you the question. Okay. I'm going to stop. I want to get to the Trinity. Um, anybody who's got any sense will walk out right now. <laughs> oh boy, this is going to get... Just if all I can do is ask for your patience for a while because this is going to get heady. Okay, the Trinity. Um, mm -mm, mm -mm, 
do this without notes. Hmm, see if I can do this. I thought I had notes. Um, okay. This is really important, more important than I can say. What I'm about to do is going to be very abstract, and I want to do everything I can to not leave it there, so it's going to take some doing. The Trinity was not just a belief or an idea for Dante. Okay? Um, if man is made in God's image, and God is a Trinity of persons, then um, if we're made in his image, it follows that the Trinity is a governing structure. It, it informs everything about everything we do. It should be present in our consciousness. It should be present in everything we do. How many people believe that? Christians, Catholics. Um, so it's not a light thing for Dante. If you look at the Divine Comedy, you find signs of the Trinity everywhere present. Okay? There are three canticles. Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. Yeah? Every canticle breaks down into three sections. Inferno. It's got three levels. The incontinent, violent, fraudulent. Why? It's another image of the Trinity. Purgatorio has three sections. There are two sections before before um, penance proper. There are two levels down here, and one Dante enters purgatory proper. There are seven levels. These are the cardinal sins, and every soul who goes to purgatory has to be purged of them. Pride, envy, wrath, <coughs> sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust. Something of an inversion of what we saw in the Inferno. Okay? There are nine, nine levels. And even the sins themselves can be divided into three. So you've got pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. Now watch this. The three lower cardinal sins are the worst because they represent um, love of an evil itself. Love of evil. A proud person wants to see somebody bad come to somebody else because he wants to get above. Envy wants to see evil come to somebody else because he wants that person to lose something he doesn't have. Wrath wants to see evil to, to somebody because he wants to get back at some harm that person's done. Pride, envy, wrath. Yeah? Sloth means an incomplete, an inadequate love. We don't love enough. So in the lower levels, we love evil. We want, we want some bad to come to something. Did God make anything bad? No. It's a disordered love on our part to want bad to come to somebody. <coughs> right? We should want good to come, even with our enemies. <coughs> Sloth. It's an inadequate love of good. Avarice, gluttony, and lust. It's an excessive love of good. Love of evil, inadequate love, love of good, excessively. How do you know this? Because it's in our nature. Everything Dante does 
reminds us that we have a nature and the choices that we make mean something. The most important thing to know about our, our, our nature is that we have free will. God gave it to us and we were meant to know and to love. Okay? <clears throat> so the structure of the Trinity is everywhere informs the divine comment. It's in each canticle, Inferno, Purgatorio, Perdiso, and each canticle is divided into three. You'll see it in the Purgatorio, and you'll see it in the heavens. When we get into the heavens, there will be three ways of dividing all of the planets. Okay? We see images of the Trinity in, in the Inferno, since it's an inversion of heaven, what we'd expect would be inversions of the Trinity. How many heads does Cerberus have? How many heads does Satan have? Three. How many people is Satan eating? Three. In the very last cantos of the Inferno, we're going to see a man, the very last one, or next to the last, a man eating another man. How is that an inversion of heaven? Because Christ does everything he can to feed us. He gives himself so that we can live. The last image of the inferno, men eating other people to satisfy their own appetites. Okay? So the image of a trinity informs the whole thing. What's the rhyme scheme? <coughs> Tears a rima. Here it is. A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, C. You see how it's going? All right? They're interlocking rhymes. A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D. It's just keep going forward. Okay? It's beautiful. We don't get it in our translation. I mean, if some Dorothy Sayers tried to do a Tears of Reem to, to hold onto the pattern, it's a little bit stiff. It's hard to do. Italian has so many rhymes, far more than English. So, um, um, everywhere in the Inferno, we're finding inversions of the Trinity. Naturally, we'll see that even more when we get to the end. But do you see now that the Trinity informs Dante? It's an organizing structure of the whole thing. Here's the point I want to make: it's not just a structural element. Dante presents the Commedia this way because for him it reveals um, our very nature, what's integral to our nature. Dante would have known, he would have read St. Augustine's The Trinity, St. Augustine's work on the Trinity. In that book, St. Augustine comes up, I think it's something like 20, 26 examples of the Trinity. The, the most important one that I know is from St. Thomas. I, I think he gets it from Augustine, it's been so long, but here to me is the most, this is the one that St. Thomas uses, and I think it's the one that's most compelling for me. Every human being has these three aspects. He is, he knows, and he loves. We've seen this again and again. What's being what, how does God identify himself in the Old Testament? I am that am. Right? He's being itself. 
Can we know or love if we didn't exist? Mm -mm. So being is a part of our nature. We are, or we couldn't know or love, yeah? But not only are we, we also know and love. What does God, the I am, what does he know when he tries to know himself? Come on, you guys. Christ. The word. Himself. And in, what does he know? A concept of himself. What's that called? The Son. Begotten. The love between himself and the Son? The Spirit. You following? So every one of us has been, we are, every one of us knows, knows something, and every one of us loves. That's a structure in our very consciousness, of our nature. The Trinity is there. We can't know if we don't exist. We can't love, right? <coughs> and more of it, it's, it's really difficult to love what we don't know. So they're integral to each other. Now, in Dunt, in St. Um, Thomas's, one of his opening sections, he offers what are famously known as the five proofs of God's existence. Two of the easiest proofs, for, I mean, I, to me, they're all amazingly easy. Um, they're, they're amazing to read, certainly are to me anyway, but... Two of the ones I think that are easiest to grasp are the argument by contingency and the argument by motion. Okay? <laughs> this, is, this is where it gets heady. I'm just, I hope you all will take this seriously so when you get into your discussions with friends you can, you all have, you will know this to your bones and be able to make it living. The argument by motion is this. Um, you can't explain the effect of one thing on another in terms of its motion without going back to an infinite regress. If you hit a, if um, I knocked over this cup of tea and somebody walked along and he slipped on it and, you know, every one of those things, every whatever happens is caused by something that moved it that was prior to it. If you hit a cue ball, it'll hit another, you know, if you you have an accident in a car, you can hit one car and that car will hit another. One of the defining qualities of nature itself is motion. It truly is. It's, it's, it's one of its defines. Everything's in motion, moving. Physicists would describe it in a certain way. But the point here is that um, when you're attempting to understand a thing in terms of its motion, going back to another thing that preceded it that was in motion, that set it into motion, won't explain it because that thing had a cause before it. So if you're explaining things by motion, you, you have an infinite regress. Things constantly caused by something else preceding it that was in motion. The only way you can make sense of that at all to come to an explanation of any of it is to, um, is to assume that there had to be a first mover who was not moved by anything. That first mover is gone. What did Aristotle call him? First mover. It's the three laws of physics. Hmm? It's the 
the three laws of physics. I was going to wonder in your... So, so that's the argument of my motion, okay? Motion itself proves the existence of God. You have to go back to some source that itself isn't, didn't come into existence or by motion, okay? Before I go to the next one, hold on to this. Aristotle um, called God the first mover. He saw God in terms of thought. Christians see God, that is, impersonal thought. God, for Aristotle, God is removed from his creation, but he's the one who put it in motion. For a Christian, that God is not only a first mover, he loves each thing into existence. And we, we believe that if he looks after the fall of a sparrow, he looks after us. There's nothing about any one of us that he doesn't know. He knows our, he knows our insides better than we do. How can he not? We can, so, so even if things are obscure to us in our emotional life, you know that feelings are often obscure, they're difficult to get to. He sees into their depths. There's no way he cannot. So our belief in God is that he's not only just a first mover, but that he loves, he sees, and he knows. Okay. Anyway, that's the, that's the argument from motion. The argument from, from contingency is the same thing. Each thing in the world is contingent. It depended on something else for its existence. It comes into being, it passes away, right? Yes? Cloud comes into being. A tree comes into being, grows up, passes away. What caused the tree, the seeds, the sun. So each thing in creation is a contingent being. It depends on something else for its existence. Something else had to precede it. Now you can see the parallel between this and the argument by motion, yeah? Everything in existence was has before it another contingent thing which helped bring it into being. But if, if you look to that as a cause, you won't find it because there was always something before that. So we're back in that infinite regress again. So to make any sense of any of these contingent things that are linked together, you have to assume a non-contingent being. That being is God. Nothing preceded him. Interesting, think about this. The whole modern science is based on a myth. It's all based on contingencies. This was before this, this was before this. It goes back to the Great Bang. But the Great Bang itself is a matter of chance. It's a contingent thing. To turn to that as a ground for explanation, is to turn to a myth. How did it get there? Matter of chance. So contingency is dealing with this question of chance and arguing that all these contingent things are inadequate to explain because there's something preceding them. You have to assume again something that's non-contingent, that has its own reality in itself. We call that God. Okay? Now, so we've got these images of accident, contingencies, motion, everywhere in our universe, right? To think rationally means you have to go back. To, to find an explanation, you have to go back to something, to a ground that will offer that explanation. You could use intelligibility. Everything in nature is intelligible. There has to be some source, some rational mind that could have... Now, I want to go to Eliot. This is going to take some doing, and then we're going to stop because the shortcut is going to be worn out. Those of you who did this will remember this. These are lines from Eliot's Quartets. He's dealing with a circle. You remember the still point. 
how important that still point was because it was the informing image of everything running through those quartets. And that's an image taken from physics. Why did, why did Eliot not put a person at the center of... Because there's not a person at the center of everything in our lives. Very often it's things. But do we understand how that thing got there? A table, a chair, a human person. There's this principle that you can describe in terms of physics or the laws of mechanics that is more capable of explaining things than to say that there's a person. Is there a person right here in my watch, in the book? No, but we've got this thing. The modern world will say it's a thing, it's not a person, that means there is no God. To show that there's a still point involved in everything is quite another matter. It means now suddenly you have to explain that point. Okay, here's Eliot. If you have, do you all have that page? At the still point of the turning world, neither those of you who know the quartets will remember this, um, neither flesh nor fleshness, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards. Remember these words, you guys, past, future, from, towards, neither ascent nor decline, Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that's to place it in time. Remember, I asked you guys this question. I'm glad I remembered it today. When you take the Eucharist, where are you? To any scientist, you'd say, what a stupid question. Are you kidding? You went into line, you've got this drink, you walked outside of church, you went into your car. Any sensible <laughs> Christian would say, if you take the Eucharist, you're taking God in you, and you're in his kingdom. Where are you? Is it adequate to say, I'm in the parking lot? That is, taking the Eucharist involves us in a mystery. Where are we? We're a part of a larger world. How well do we see it if it's a mystery? One of, one of the great criticisms of most modern writers, I mean, thinking of religion, Faulkner certainly, Flannery O'Connor, would be, they say, the modern mind has made itself worse because it refuses to live in mystery. It wants everything understood, even the human soul, the human psyche, get control of everything. It does not want to live in mystery. Take the Eucharist, where are you? That to me is a hunting question. Because it means the, the, the normal boundaries by which we define our lives suddenly blur. Where, so where are we? Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance and there is only the dance. I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that's to place it in time. Where are we with Christ? The incarnation, in time, out of time. Eliot's done an extraordinary thing here. Words move, music moves, only in time, but that which is only living can only die. Words after speech reach into the silence. Only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness. I hope you see we're heading towards the still point. Oh, the, the word. What's the ultimate source of the word? The word. If we're using words well, it should be a serious concern whether we're using them to move us closer to the word, the source. Are our words reflecting 
our faith, our love, our knowledge. These three things. Um, only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness as a Chinese jar moves perpetually in its stillness. Not the stillness of the violin while the note lasts, not that only, but the coexistence, or say that the end precedes the beginning, and the end and the beginning were always there, before the beginning and after the end. Alpha and Omega, who is that? The love that was there in the beginning, who will be there at the end? Are our actions moving us closer to him, that is, towards the center, or farther towards the margins? And all is always now. <laughs> Elliot will either drive people nuts, or they will help people think more deeply. The detail of the pattern is movement, as in the figure of the ten stairs. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. You all see how this points to God? The unmoved mover. I hope everybody's clear. There's no desire in God. None. God is love. Love is complete. God is complete in himself. There's nothing he does that isn't in love. We're beyond him. We desire. We desire things. We desire God. We want to be with him. It's only when love is complete that it rests. There's no desire in him. He loves. Whatever he brings to us will be love. It'll be a complete love. The question is, can we move with him? Step with him. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement, timeless and undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation. Okay. On the back page, I'm just I'm going to read. <clears throat> this is... A, a page from the book, sorry, the book that I'm working on. The key image by which all movement is to be grasped is the wheel that spins around an unmoving point. The speed of the turning increases the farther the edge gets from the wheel's center, but at its very center, the wheel is motionless. The wheel itself moves, trans transports us from where? From, towards, before, after, but its intellectual and geometric center, it is still. It is both in and outside of time simultaneously. The same with the Chinese vase that moves perpetually in its stillness. The vines and the dragon on the vase are full of life and vitality, but the motion of their vigorous energy are caught in the stillness of its form. Even the vase's unmoving curved shape hints at a movement of disparate or far or near edges. Remember, because the jar is shaped like this, mm -hmm. if you rotated the jar, it wouldn't move. I mean, all you'd see is the one shape, even though it's circling, mm -hmm. near and far. They're still, even while they're moving. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. um, hints at a movement of disparate and far and near edges spinning in balance around a point. The ten-stair image simply repeats the principle from another perspective. Stairs appropriately facilitate movement, up or down, because that was another. Before, after, in, out, up, down. Um, stairs appropriately facilitate movement, but in themselves are fixed. If they weren't, they wouldn't work. I hope that's clear. Yeah? Um, in this particular case, the stairs may suggest a purgatorial movement, the ongoing penance one undertakes to climb a mountain and attain the rest offered at the top. 
Ten represents a perfect number or completion of a movement. The last image introduced is the dance, and it's one Eliot will return to again and again. Without the still point, he says, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that's to place it in time. Like the other forms, the dance itself hints at a still point. Every jump, every turn or spin of a dancer implies an equipoise without which the action would simply end in a fall or collapse. Without that point, the dancer would crumble. So every movement, this whole thing of motion, every movement implies a still point, an unmoved mover. Are you still awake? So now you all can go out and argue with Okay. Quickly, um, turn the, in the Paradiso. Oh, God, I hope I've got this. Uh, I'm, I may not be able to find this right now. I thought I had it saved, but... Let me just tell you, and then I'm going to read. In, in, in Dante, when Dante gets to the back of the universe... In the Paradiso, when he gets to the back of the universe, he's going to turn around and look at the whole world, and he's going to see what at the center? Earth. Not moving. Why? Because it's dead. That's mortality. As he moves through the heavens, the heavens come to life because they're overlooked by the gods. That's that cosmology of Dante's time. But the earth is not moving, and every circle moving around, it goes faster and faster and faster until he comes to the prima mobile that's moving so fast that you almost can't see it. What puts the prima mobile, the first mover, into motion? God. And he describes it as a tree. So the whole universe is like a tree existing in God's mind. Fred asked a question last week. Um, form, body, and soul. How does Dante recognize these things? I, I called him later that day because I was just so taken with his question. St. Thomas says this. The body, the body is not contained the soul is yeah, the soul is not contained by the body. The, the soul contains it. The body is contained by the soul. Okay? Have I got the 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 the, the, the body does not contain the soul. You just can't reach inside the body and pull out a soul and say, okay? Because Prince question last week was, how, how does he recognize these people? They're all dead. They don't have any souls. No, or bodies, sorry. And I, I gave the answer. Remember, the body the body is what individualizes each person. It's what makes us distinct. We all have souls. It leaves its imprint. So when, it, when we go to the next life, we are who we are. Soul, take that image. St. Thomas, the body does not contain the soul. The body is contained by the soul. There is no part that isn't contained by it because it's what gives the body life. Okay? So that at ultimate times when the, at the resurrection, the body will be returned. That's our belief. It's, it's one of the things that distinguishes from Buddhism and Hinduism. And, you know, it's not, a, it's not a small thing because it's the body that individualizes us, that makes us distinct. For most other religions, the, the soul, when it goes to the next life, they become a part of a, this conglomerate. I mean, we lose our individual identity because for the Hindu, the, it's our individual uniqueness that's part of our problem. 
for Christianity, that's not so. So, um, <clears throat> so here we've got Dante looking back at the earth, not moving, with God outside. And it's like a tr tree whose roots are in God's mind. The, the first motion imparts a motion to all the other, until you get to the earth, which is practically, because it's where things die. When he turns around and looks in Beatrice's eyes, who's, and she's looking at God, he sees the exact reverse. When he looks at the universe, now he's looking at it in terms of spiritual realities, the forms of things. He looks at the earth and it's spinning so fast, it's standing still. Why? Because that's God present everywhere in his creation. So as you move away from the earth, every planet moves more slowly until you get to the... So there's this wonderful juxtaposition of these two views, one, one materialistic and one spiritual showing the, the paradoxical way in which God created the, the universe and in which he's present in it. Okay? Now let me give this. This is Boethius, the last book, the book I'd said that we're going to read <laughs> after this. Uh-oh. Oh gosh. 82. Yeah. Boethius says that. Remember, philosophy is trying to help Boethius answer this question. Why does God allow evil? Why does God allow good men to suffer? And evil men to prosper. That's the fun. And then Boethius has to make this long argu argument that will take him finally to fate and providence, the working of God in the world. Here at this point, he says, the form of the divine stuff, substance, this is God, is such that it does not spread out in. This is amazing. He's talking about God. The form of the divine substance is such that it does not spread out into outside things or take up into itself anything from them. So God isn't just coming from outside things to impart something to them. If he made them, he's somehow present in them. He's imminent in them. So God, our God, is both transcendent and imminent. We've talked about this, that everything in creation has traces of God. That's why, that's why um, Hopkins would look at a wind hover and see something going on that revealed God. Or the girl who pricks her finger. You know, the little... Um, as Parmenides says of it, like the mass of a sphere well-rounded in all ways, it rotates the moving sphere of the universe while remaining itself unmoved. Okay. Hold on now. To make this clear at a later point, Boethius uses the analogy of a circle with a still point at the center. Um... Every there, everything, therefore, which comes under fate is also subject to providence, to which fate itself is subject. But certain things which come under providence are above the chain of fate. These are things which rise above the order of change ruled over by fate in virtue of the stability of their position close to the supreme Godhead. The closer you are to the center with God, the more stable, the more firm your position is. Imagine the saints 
Is there any saint who could have done what he did if he hadn't been closer to God than other people? Um, the, um, the inmost one comes closest to the simplicity of the center. Hold on to that line. The inmost one comes closest to the simplicity of the center while forming itself a kind of center for those set outside it to revolve around. The circle furthest out rotates through a wider orbit and the greater the distance from the individual center point, the greater the space it spreads through. Anything that joins itself to the middle circle is brought close to simplicity. It's talking about circles within circles and no longer spreads out widely. In the same way, whatever moves any distance from the primary intelligence becomes enmeshed in ever stronger chains of fate and everything is the freer from fate the closer it seeks the center of things. Imagine a circle. Imagine a circle for a second. And the center is God, this still point. Yeah. If if God is here and we're he what he's saying is the circumference is fate. We're ruled by these things. We we call it a passion. A passion means being passive, letting the world take over. That's why we call craft. Christ's crucifixion, a passion. Passion means to be put into motion by another. We want a piece of cake, that cake moves us. We want a beautiful girl, we want a home, we want wealth, We right? These things move us. And you know that they can become addictive. Once once we want them so much, we're, we're caught, we can't move elsewhere. So the closer we are here, the more taken up by things. Think about people who just want possessions. How free are their lives? What would happen if they had to give them up? I mean, make it whatever it is. So, the closer you are here, the more you're moved by things farther away from God. The more, you can say, the more you're possessed by them. Um, in the same way, whatever moves any distance from the primary intelligence becomes enmeshed in ever stronger chains of fate. What's the irony about possessing things? You no sooner get one, then you want another. You no sooner get it, you get a new car, what happens to the car? Somebody scratches it. You get a plant, it dies. Fall in love with a dog, it dies. It can be a loved one, he or she dies. Yeah? We're putting our love in ephemeral changing things. Um, and everything freer from fate, the closer it seeks the center of things. Now here it is. If it cleaves to the steadfast mind of God, it is free from movement and so escapes the necessity imposed by fate. Remember, Boethius is in prison, about to die. So the question he's facing is, is he going to keep grieving because he's been reading too much poetry? Or is he going to get closer to God and quiet his heart? Um, and if it cleaves to the steadfast mind of God, it's free from movement and so escapes the necessity imposed by fate. The relationship between the ever-changing course of fate, always in flux, and the stable simplicity of providence, here it is, is like that between reasoning and understanding. Reason is motion. We're reasoning to get someplace. Understanding means Linda's word. Ah, I see. It's rest. The mind rest. Right? We make a clue. You work to get here and say, this is, it is. When you say it is, you're closer to God because he is. You're saying it's this. Um... The relationship between the ever-changing course of fate and the stable simplicity of province is like that between reasoning and understanding. 
between that which is coming into being and that which is between time and eternity or between the moving circle and the still point at its center. Okay. What's going on in hell? In hell, hell is filled with people who are caught in restless motion. They'll do that. They will never know rest. Right? It's like they're trapped in fate. Whatever they wanted, they've got. But it puts them in perpetual motion. What's at the center of God? We'll see when we get to the paradiso. It'll be all these souls who are freed from that. Who haven't lost their powers of motion, but they're at rest. They're with God. So what we're seeing here is at the center of the circle is the unmoved mover. This is God. He's what put everything else into motion. The farther you move away from him, the more you're caught up in a world given to disordered loves. The closer you move to that center, the closer you move to God's peace. So one of the issues here is, how do we look at the souls in hell? They've lost their center. Right? They've chosen these other things, and that's what they've got. That's why there's this perpetual restless motion. So this image of the Trinity you know, the, is not a structural thing. It's an explanation of everything in the universe. It shows a God that's Trinitarian moving everywhere to try to help us fulfill our nature. We can either go against it, in which case we're looking at the condition of hell, or we will move towards him. Purgatory, paradiso. Next week, you have the consolation of <laughs> not having to deal with anything quite so abstract. Uh, any questions? Any questions? I know that that's... I hope that was okay. I know that's heavy stuff. Are you guys okay with this? Was it? Huh? Where was it? Yes. Any comments or questions or? Buides. By the way, this is a foretaste of Buides. Here, look here. It, it, it's an extraordinary book. It, I, as I said before, it's one of the most important books of the Middle Age. It's, it's a drama. It's, it's Boethi's meeting with who She comes to him. Here, look, it's only this long. I, don't buy it, because I'm ordering it. And, um, but it, it, it's a synthesis of everything Platonic and Aristotelian. It's just an amazing, amazing work.